So every parent at some point pools, I'm sure you face this decision as well with respect to your children. How old do they need to be to leave your kids home alone? Right, how old should your kids be to leave them home alone? So my wife and I, we have two boys. We were living at the time in Asheville, North Carolina, and some dear friends had come to visit us from out of town. Unfortunately, so they wanted to go for a hike on Saturday morning, a long hike. And unfortunately, uh, my youngest son was sick, my oldest son was on crutches at the time, and Katie was away at a funeral of a distant relative. So uh, I made the tough decision to leave them at home for the day and, and go for this hike. So tell me what you think. At the time, our kids' ages were six and eight years old. They were a mature six and eight. I'm just playing, they weren't six and eight, they were 12 and 14 years old. But you guys, I got a lot of judgy looks. I just wanna say that, a lot of you are like, I'm thinking of leaving. I can't trust this guy. Some of you are still giving that look, by the way, I just wanted to put that out. But I will say my then 12-year-old had to, had to nearly deal, deal with something that was maybe a little bit too old for his age. A couple people darkened our door, uh, knocked on it, and who was there but a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, <laughs> all right, now if you forget, sometimes I get confused at the difference between uh, uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. So Mormons believe salvation is the process of becoming a god and inheriting your own planet someday. Where Jehovah's Witnesses are ones who they uh, deny the deity of Jesus and reject blood transfusions. So that's kind of how. Now, thankfully, these uh, Jehovah's Witnesses didn't stay for long. Uh, they dropped off a pamphlet and then departed. Well, here is what they left behind. It'll be up on the screen here as well. Now, my first concern with seeing this pamphlet was the 1970s style graphics and graphic designs they used. That was my first concern, <laughs> was aesthetically. However, I will say this. It does wisely and simply ask one of life's most important questions, which you can see up here on the screen, is will suffering ever end? Right? Will suffering ever end? A compelling question. Would you, and then it says, would you say yes, no, or maybe? Yeah, well, how would you answer that question, right? Will suffering ever end without ending us in the process? When I, when I consider uh, perpetual or cyclical suffering, it's hard for my mind not to wander oftentimes to, to school shootings uh, here in America. Uh, in, in 2019, firearms surpassed car accidents as the number one cause of death among children and teens in the United States. About a month ago, uh, three kids, three kids and three adults were killed, gunned down at Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, soon after, I spoke with a pastor friend of mine uh, who's friends with the pastor who, who's, whose child was killed there. And after that, um, our sister-in-law, my sister-in-law spoke with us and had mentioned she was on that, she was driving on that road the school was on just the, just the day before. And so the, the proximity to tragedy just, just began to close in, even though it once felt pretty distant, that kind of thing. I think because uh, we, lived, uh, we lived overseas. We lived in another country for about nine years. And in that country, we averaged about uh, one death by, by gun homicide a year. And so um, 
the proximity to that tragedy shifted when my eldest son uh, experienced four school lockdowns in his first four months of living back here in the United States. Uh, so he saw his first SWAT team in action as a young man, I mean, his first police sniper. You know, nothing happened, thankfully, and the, and the authorities and the police and the, and the, and the school did, did a wonderful job, did everything they could. But it was a reminder to me that, that, that tragedy and suffering is always nearer than we think. Even if we're not experiencing it now, it's always near. It, it, is, it is like a shadow away. And some of you might even be experienced some kind of suffering now. Whether you're watching at home, listening on the podcast, you're with us this morning, you might be sensing that yourself. And so back to our question, will suffering ever end? Now, followers of Jesus, we can respond to that question with some certainty and some hope, as we're going to see here in the book of James, chapter 5, starting in verse 7. So read that with me, if you will. It'll be up here on the screen also. James 5, 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Being patient about it until it receives the, earth, uh, the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, that, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, consider those blessed who remained, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is God's word. So our message in a nutshell is this this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Trust Jesus that your best is yet to come. Trust Jesus that your best is always yet to come. Specifically, your best is the return of Jesus, who, who will right all the wrong things in this world and right all the wrong things in us, which is a great thing for me personally. So after Jesus died and rose from the dead, he, he appeared to people for 40 days, appeared to, to 500 people in total, we're told. He then ascended into heaven so that he could, he could send God the Holy Spirit to, to dwell in us forever and empower us who trust him, any person who trusts him. Immediately after he ascends into heaven, two angels appear, and they say to the disciples that he's left behind, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So they pass on, these disciples do, what, what they learn to every follower of Jesus so that, so that every follower of Jesus is familiar with what James refers to twice in our passage as the coming of the Lord. James assumes that his readers knew about this second coming, that Jesus was going to come again in the same way that you saw him go away. He's going to come back. But in case you might be new to all this, church, Christianity, all this stuff, here, here are some basics about Jesus' return. First of all, Jesus returns, number one, so he can be with us forever, which is a wonderful thing. 
Number two, Jesus will bring heaven to earth with him when he comes. So in the last couple chapters of God's big story, the Bible, he says this, uh, this, this uh, follower of Jesus named John has this vision and he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared like a bride for her husband. And he says he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Right? Not us with him. He will come and dwell with us. Number three, Jesus will right all the wrong things on this earth and in us. A wonderful thing, right? Number four, his return is at hand, as we read here in verse 8 of James chapter 5. It can happen at any moment. So James exhorts us, because it can happen at any moment in these five verses, to wait well for his any moment return, that the best that is yet to come, his return. Now, in this passage, James essentially seems to be saying, wait here, because all you can do is wait. And he gives us a few examples of how to wait well. How do you wait well in the meantime? And in the middle, he seems to insert this this random verse. Verse 9, look at it with me again. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. I call this a next verser. What I mean by next versers are, are those verses that you read and then you nod your head like a good churchgoer because the verse appears to belong in the Bible even though it seems pretty random to what you're reading, right? You ever have those moments? You're like, okay, okay, what? All right, let's move on. So you nod your head, you move on to the next verse because here James says, hey, wait well, don't grumble against one another or you're gonna be judged. And by the way, here are some examples of waiting well. I believe, though, this verse about grumbling, which appears so random, actually provides the key to how we wait well through our pain. Think about this together here with me, if you would. When we grumble, we place our frustration upon our loved ones, right? Upon upon fellow family members in Christ. When we do that, what is it that we are doing? We are asking them to deliver us from our pain. We're asking them to deliver us from, from our pain. Now, occasionally, we, we transfer that pain onto people directly, right? When we're just so frustrated, we blurt something out in, in anger. But usually, it's indirect, the way we transfer our pain. It's walking in the door and saying, hey, why is the bedroom always messy? Or, or why haven't the kids put away the dishes? What we're really saying is make my life orderly out here because inside it's chaos, right? Maybe you've experienced mistreatment or injustice. Like you've just experienced that and you, and you head to something. Say you head, head to waiting rooms on Wednesday night or, or you head to your dinner table and you transfer your pain by being uh, disagreeable or, or contrarian. And when we ask, like, why are we so disagreeable? It's probably because I'm seeking affirmation that, that someone will agree with me and, 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 and support my outrage for, for having this injustice done to me. Right? And so we're, we're transferring that on someone else. We're asking some, well, we have only one deliverer who can forever deliver us from our pain and suffering, friends, and that's Jesus Christ. 
Instead, when we put our pain and heartache on fellow loved ones and fellow family members, we're, we're expecting them to deliver us, which is something they can't do. This helps us make sense of why James talks of the judge and being judged in verse 9. Look at that again, right? Judge and judge in verse 9. Whenever we hear the word judge and judge, it sounds harsh, especially when we read it in the New Testament. I thought this was about Jesus and his love, but the more we transfer our trust over and over again to, to other people to deliver us from our pain, to help us escape our pain, the further we endanger ourselves towards judgment because our trust isn't in Jesus, right? It's other people. So what then should we do? What ought we do to give voice to our pain? James, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to just shut up and wait till Jesus' return? So if you could, I really want us to hold on to that question because I believe James actually addresses it here in one of the three examples of how to wait well. How to wait well in the midst of suffering. He gives three examples of, of trusting and waiting well in the midst of suffering. A man named Job, a group of people called the prophets, and a farmer. And for the sake of, uh, for the sake of time, your attention span... And frankly, mine, we're going to focus this morning on the one example that James spills the most ink on, and that is Job. Job, who, who trusts God that he will make all things right, even though he suffers. So let me give you a quick summary of Job's story, if you, if you don't know about it. Job is this character in the Old Testament. We don't know exactly when he lived or, or that sort of thing. He's kind of the shadowy figure. Well, what we do know is that Job does what is right. He loves God with all his heart. But one day, he loses all of his wealth, all of his livestock. Savings account empty, house gone, foreclosure, loses it all. That same day, he loses every single one of his kids. Every son, every daughter is killed. He's killed. Soon after, he loses his health. Job loves God more than anything or any person on earth, and yet everything of value is taken from him. And what neither Job, his wife, uh, his friends are privy to is that behind the scenes, Satan has approached God. And Satan claims that Job's love for God is a mercenary love. That the only reason Job really loves God is because of all the things God has given to him, Right? Like the parent who's been away for a while but gives his kids lots of gifts, and so the parent loves him anyway. So wanting to test and refine Job's love and trust, God allows Satan to afflict Job. So the rest of the book is Job's friends dropping in to give him counsel in his suffering. And they mostly say things like, hey, Job, remember, God must have a reason for your suffering. And, and Job, a friend, have you really examined your life to make sure you haven't done anything to make God mad? Which sounds like church people advice, right? That might be what we say to one another, like, uh, have you thought about this? Don't forget this, right? And yet we, the readers, know that Job has suffered not despite of his goodness and love for God, but because of it. So how does Job respond in the midst of suffering? It's interesting because our passage this morning commends Job, celebrates Job, right? 
gives them a certificate of appreciation. We, we love what you've done. Read with me uh, again in verse uh, 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord. So the only thing, though, as you read Job's story, that he does steadfastly, which, hey, good job, Job, you're steadfast. But if you read, the only thing Job does steadfastly for about 30 chapters is complain and grumble to and against God. Exactly. That is the point. The key to voicing our pain is who we voice it to. And time and again, Job complains to and against God. And that's important. I'm going to give you a couple of, just a couple examples how Job does this. Job chapter 10, verses 1, uh, 1 through 2. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will say to God, let me know why you contend against me. Here's another one. Job chapter 21, verse 4. As for me, is my complaint against man? And the answer is a rhetorical question is no, it's not against man. It's, my, friends, my complaint's not against man, it's against the Lord. James views this as an act of steadfast trust. Job steadfastly brings his grumblings to and against God instead of to and against his religious friends. He doesn't put his pain on them, he puts it on the Lord. And we see this, by the way, in the Old Testament Psalms as well. Um, the Psalms in the Old Testament are like, are like prayer journals of people who love God. And so many of these prayer journals are people just writing out their frustration, their grumblings to and against God. We see the psalmist grumbling to God about being in imminent physical danger, uh, under the threat of death, but at other times they're just complaining about being gossiped about. <laughs> right? And this any pain is legitimate pain to voice to God. I want you to hear that, friends. Any pain is legitimate pain to voice to God. One trick we learn in church culture, I'm sad to say, is that we uh, suppress our complaining by comparing it uh, to, our, to our measly suffering, to what we call worse suffering, right? Real suffering. Like, like those, our rationale is like, how can I grumble? when I consider the loved ones of those who are, who are gunned down in Nashville, Tennessee, or, or those who were gunned down yesterday in Cleveland, Texas, right? Like, how can I complain? How can I grumble when I consider that kind of suffering when Job has his sons and his daughters killed? How can I complain? I'm so blessed in comparison. My friends, number one, that doesn't work for your pain. And number two, God does not rank suffering. He doesn't. He loves us. And, and, and the last thing he wants us to do is suppress our pain and think we can't bring it to him. He sees. He knows. He cares. So he wants us to share it with him before we put that pain on someone else, someone who can't do anything about it, can't handle it. Not that we can't confide and say friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, of course, but if that's all we do, we begin to transfer our trust to them, asking them, in effect, to deliver us from our pain. Let me say it more bluntly. When we primarily grumble, who we primarily grumble to says a lot about in whom our faith really rests. 
Who we primarily grumble to says a lot about in whom our faith really rests. Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And what does it mean to come to him, but to come to him with all of who we are, right? Our deepest grumblings, our darkest pain. He wants to hear it. He wants to. So Job, Job never finds out the answer to his why. God never tells Job or us the purpose of his suffering. So why then does James say with respect to Job in verse 11, you have seen the purpose of the Lord? Frankly, I think it's because the, the translation, English translation purpose is a mistranslation. The original Greek word telos can either be translated, depending on the context, purpose or end, as in the end result. You have, you have seen the end result of the Lord. Other translations like the NIV use the latter, and I agree with those because we never find out God's purpose for Job's suffering. We do, however, get to see the end result of his suffering. And through that end result, we get to see that the, indeed the Lord is compassionate and merciful, as James puts it in the end. God makes and puts all wrong things right in Job's life. The story of Job ends with God restoring to Job all that he previously possessed. Seven new sons, seven new daughters, twice the amount of possessions and his health. Job lives 140 years and gets to be a great, great grandfather. And on top of everything else, he gets to speak with the living God. For Job, the best was still yet to come, as God righted every wrong in his story. And friends, in Jesus, God can right every wrong in your story as well, and you can trust him for that. We are promised a new creation, no more sorrows, no more tears, only light and goodness. The good things that we always have loved on earth won't be obliterated because heaven is coming to earth when Jesus comes from heaven. Redwoods, forests, trees, right? Rivers, uh, laughter at a good joke, the smile of someone we've never before met, the thrill of learning something new. All of that will be perfected, not obliterated. Getting to dine, not only speak with like Job did, but getting to dine with the living God face to face. As we saw last week, when Jesus presented the Lord's Supper, he said the next time that he would raise a glass of wine would be with you and with me on an earth refurbished. Yeah, cheers indeed. So hold on, friends. Hold on and trust Jesus that your best is always yet to come. Like grace, Jesus' return, his coming back, it's, it's the great equalizer no matter how hard, how dry, how draining or difficult your life has become, you can trust that it will end well with Jesus. But on the flip side, no matter how good, how prosperous, how hashtag blessed your life is now, your best is still yet to come also. No matter where you're at with Jesus, it's always going to get better. Let's pray. We're thankful for that promise. The promise of your return, Jesus. 
is a promise of making all the wrong things right in this world and in us. And we are so thankful that we can hold on to that hope and trust that in youth, things will always get better and that our best is yet to come. And with that hope and that anchor, in the meantime, Jesus, help us, like Job, exercise steadfast trust through taking our grumblings and our pain to you. That is what Job did so well, (laughs) was go to you with his grumblings and his complaint. I've asked that question for years. Why is Job so applauded? It's because he grumbled to you. Help us take our grumblings and our pain and our heartache to you, Jesus, the one who wants to hear it, the one who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'm the one who can give you rest and can remind you of what's to come. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.